You are listening to Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. Today's mystery is, why are the mid-70s Celtics so overlooked? Hello, welcome to the Over and Back Classic NBA Podcast. This is Jason. I was pleased to have Bob Ryan, the sports columnist emeritus for the Boston Globe, a legend in sports writing who began his career covering the Celtics in the 1970s as our guest. Unfortunately, we had a minor recording issue that cut off the first minute of discussion in which we were talking about how the 70s Celtics are overshadowed by the two other glory periods for the team. Of course, the Bill Russell dynasty with 11 championships in 13 seasons from 57 through 69 and the Larry Bird era of the 80s. So we're joined in progress with Bob talking about how the 70s team falls through the cracks. Before we get to the interview, though, I want to tell you guys about our fellow Harvard Paroxysm Network podcast, Fast Break Breakfast. It is a podcast for serious NBA fans that is incredibly not serious. If you watch League Pass every night but aren't listening, you are missing out. Fast Break Breakfast is what happens when you get two musicians and a comic who are overeducated, underemployed, but share an obsession about the NBA, 90s movies, and conspiracy theories. So make sure you subscribe to Fast Break Breakfast, a podcast for serious NBA fans that is incredibly not serious. And now, my interview with Bob Ryan joined in progress. The next era that everyone remembers because the world had changed and the NBA was far more prominent um, was the Bird era. Uh, so they win three times from 81 to 86 and they're contenders right through 89 and uh, through 90 actually and um, true contenders and, and you can even argue into 91 and 2 and, and, um, it, and it's, it's a whole different NBA world. So yes, the, the team that has kind of been fallen through the cracks of history is that 70s group. And, of course, that's the group that I cut my own teeth on uh, as a young writer and uh, have a tremendously uh, strong uh, personal affinity for and uh, and uh, means a lot to me. And uh, I'm always happy to talk about them and the league at, of that time. Yeah. So um, Bill Russell retires following the 1969 season as player and coach. Uh, a bit of a surprise for him to retire, uh, forcing uh, Red Arbach to rebuild the team for the first time in almost 20 years. Um, what was it like for you to know, kind of between 1970 and 1972 as the Celtics, um, you know, they have Havlicek, who's one of the great um, all around players really in the game's history. Um, they add uh, they had Dave, Dave Cowens and Jojo White. What was it kind of like for the Celtics to be in this position again to have to rebuild after so much success? And then, um, you know, leading into the uh, 73 season when they add Paul Silas and, and, and start to really contend again. The first year out was a total transition year. Russell, he did surprise them, although anything, nothing he did should have surprised anybody, but he retired in an uh, unfortunate way for the team in that he did it in a magazine article and it's illustrated in the summer after the draft. They did not therefore draft uh, uh, if, if, they, if he had told them they might have tried to draft the center. It turned out I'm glad they didn't, but, but uh, they didn't, and um, um, that's that. Uh, so they drafted JoJo White, and, and that's fine. Um, that they were they won 34 games they uh they were weak in the middle they had a three-headed center monster of, of hank finkel uh jim bad news barnes the real bad news barnes let's not confuse uh, the the nicknames here that the man who for whom the nickname came was not marvin it was jim and uh, richie johnson who was a, a skinny center out of grambling who could run very well up and down the floor and uh, we called them bad news finkel barnes and uh, so tommy heinson was a rookie coach he had never coached a thing in his life uh, he was an insurance salesman who dabbled in uh, uh, occasional broadcast 
broadcasting after he retired in 65. Uh, but he was a true blue Celtic, and he was hired by Red Auerbach to coach the team. But he was on an on-the-job training uh, circumstance himself. Red was always available for consultation. You mentioned Havlicek. He's at the very, very peak of his career. Uh, Tom Heinsohn actually tried to bring him off the bench in the first couple of games to maintain that continuity of the greatest six-man until he realized this is ridiculous. I need him on the floor every bit of the way. And so John wound up not really leading the league in minutes played. Uh, John did never had to never had to come out of a game. If he had to go 48, he went 48. If he had to go 53, he went 53. Uh, that's why he was at this point he had passed Oscar Robertson and West as the best player in the league. Uh, though people will never understand that. By that time they were on the downside. He was still at his peak, and he was the best player in the league, uh, uh, non-center in the next five years. Uh, he carried the team. He led the league in scoring rebounds and assists. Don Nelson was still very very viable. Uh, was a tremendous scorer. Had his uh, highest scoring year. Uh, Sat Sanders was still around, uh, and then they had so they had two teams really. They had the old team and the young team, and they they actually beat the Knicks in the season series that year. Believe it or not, four games to three. Uh, but they weren't a very good team, and they did not make the playoffs. Now. In that draft, they fin- they had the fourth pick, and, and uh, Dave Cowens was the pick, and that changed everything. Uh, right away, they um, they uh, are going to be better. And the next year, they win 44 games, and uh, White and um, uh, Don Chaney are uh, and putting the lineup by Heinsohn. Havacek is going off as, as the best player in the league, as I pointed out. Uh, uh, once again, non-center, the best player in the league is Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, but uh, you know, and Willis Reed, but uh, uh, but non-center, it's Havacek. And they went 50, 44. They don't make the playoffs, but they do have a 10-game winning streak in December, and they're and they're back on the map. The next year. They turned the corner, and uh, they they win 56, and they win the division. They, for the first time they've won a playoff game since post-Russell, um, and uh, they're back in business. But they're still not as good as the Knicks. The Knicks uh, beat them in the playoffs in five games rather easily, frankly, and uh, they know they have to get better. And uh, that's where the fun starts. You mentioned Paul Silas. He became a Celtic for the very simple reason that uh, Red Auerbach had played chess, as they say, while others were playing checkers. In the 1970 NBA draft, which was one of the great drafts of all time, look it up, uh, the uh, Celtics uh, uh, did something which was very avant-garde at the time. Though um, uh, Charlie Scott and uh, Bobby uh, Croft had been drafted by the ABA. He, he secured their NBA draft rights, uh, signed by the ABA. He secured their NBA draft rights. Well, it came to pass in 1972 that Charlie Scott got antsy with the ABA and was wooed by the Phoenix Suns and jumped from the ABA to the NBA. But, oh, wait a minute. Uh, who's got Charlie Scott's rights? Uh, well, guess what? It's the Boston Celtics. And Red Auerbach, of course, is not going to let this pass. Long story short. In order for them to relinquish the rights to Scott, uh, they secured uh, Paul Silas, who was nest- made, had made his breakthrough season that year uh, as a from becoming a big burly player into a great player by losing 35 pounds and transforming himself, and he had become a real force with the Suns. He was the power forward that they needed to combat the big, bad, evil Dave DeBusher of the Knicks, who had killed them. He had no answer for Dave DeBusher. Well, now they've got one. Silas becomes a Celtic. That's the big thing, uh, the big addition. And uh, with Silas in the lineup, along with Cowens, who had an MVP season in 72-73, they did, as you mentioned, win 68 games. Yeah. And what, you know, from what I understand, Cowens, what kind of made him special? Because he was undersized, but it was just the kind of the ferocity in which he played and the speed in which he played, which was able to key the Celtics, who were a, you know, a, a very fast-running team in that era. People... Uh, always want to have comparisons, and, I'm, and I love to give people comparisons. Uh, uh, who's he like every time you see a new player, right? Who's he like? Who's he remind you of? Give me a frame of reference. 
I cannot give a young listener a frame of reference in the contemporary game for Dave Cowens. There is none. There have been people, people tried. One guy that came the closest simply because A, he was 6'8", B, he was left-handed, C, he was white, and, and D, he had red hair, was David Lee. Well, David Lee is to Dave Cowens, uh, well, put it this way, double A. A double A is to the big leagues. Triple A, maybe. Maybe. Triple A. Uh, Dave Cowens, you're right, played with a ferocity. First of all, he's a great athlete. He was a jump. He was a white leaper. Can I say that in 2016? You could say it back in 1970. Uh, he was a white leaper, and, and he, he astonished people. In fact, I had a black referee named Ken Hudson tell me uh, that um, – Frankly, that the referees in the league uh, called too many fouls on Cowens because they couldn't believe that a white guy could jump that high when he was blocking shots. Okay, this is from a black referee, so let's get it straight to what an athlete he was. He played taller than 6'8". He was uncommonly aggressive and, and strong, physically strong. And also could run like run uh, outrun any center in the league, uh, and and was a great born rebounder, quick to the ball, ferocious, and and just a great player. And offensively had a uh, good medium range jump shot, good inside moves, uh, and 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 he was just a terrific player. And and aggressive. he was the MVP in the league that year. So yeah, uh, he triggered, he he enabled them to to have a a, a fast break. Uh, they were a fast break team. And unlike the only there's nobody that runs like this today. In an organized fast break with an outlet pass and a middleman and wingman and, and guys crossing over on the, and, then the, and then finally the trailer. Don Nelson thrived as the trailer coming down on hitting the 15-foot trailer. Cowens thrived as the trailer coming down and hitting the 15-footer. That doesn't exist anymore. Nobody runs like that. And um, that's just that. But uh, Cowens just tied all things together. Plus, he was a terrific defensive player and he wanted to be a center. See, he believed that the center was the most important position and it was the, he was the traffic cop on offense and defense. That's the way he viewed it and that's the way he played it. Yeah. And then the other key player um, during that time, Jojo White, the uh, point guard, the Iron Man of the team, um, kind of exemplified the uh, you know, persistence and grit that that team had um, during that time. Uh, talk a little bit about what he brought to the team. Jojo brought offense. Jojo was a controversial player within the team uh, because the, 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 the veterans at one point thought that Jojo uh, did not care, share, uh, carry his load on, on defense or that he wanted to shoot too much or that he wouldn't do such things as block out. Uh, they, they switched on everything, which meant that you had to be willing to stand on, in front of forwards and centers at times underneath the basket just to block them out. Uh, and uh, the other people would do that, but Jojo wasn't reluctant, was reluctant. He never he never went on the floor. He played. A, 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 he used to say, "I play hard within my style," and his style was was smooth and gracious. But what he was was a terrific offensive player with a great medium range jumper. He didn't have three point range, but many few people did, and, and he would have had to have worked on that. And I'm sure he would have, but he didn't need it. Uh, he went to the basket beautifully. He had a great running hook. He was a good finisher on the break. And, and he was just a terrific offensive player, uh, you know, born, uh, born to score 20. And, but he needed to smooth out the other stuff. He wasn't a born point guard. He was really a hybrid guard. Um, Havlicek was their best middleman. And then, of course, I don't know if you know about Art Hambo and Williams, but he was, he was coming off the bench, and he was a terrific playmaker, um, and, uh, and he was a very important part of their bench arsenal in those days. But when, once JoJo matured and figured it all out, he became a great player. But that really didn't take place until later on, probably around 74, 75. And certainly by 70, because he was the deserved MVP of the 76 finals. And then um, you know, Don Janey, who was uh, tremendously long-armed, um, a defensive guard who teamed very well with uh, White and um, 
he brought like another element obviously you know white was kind of the weak link on defense but the other guys certainly were you know incredible defenders and you know the seven the uh the, the team of that time as the celtics have been for most of their history of success you know known for um being a stout defensive team what the celtics had that no one else had was cowens and white at uh, cowens and cheney in that uh cowens was capable on switches of guarding smaller men and cheney was capable in switches with his six five height is long, 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 long arms, which are obviously very strong arms, uh, and his agility is, and his willingness to, uh, he could guard big guys. So they could switch on anything, and, and, and it, it made a difference. Don Chaney was a great defensive player on the ball, and uh, um, he's the guy that, that had, was, got stuck guarding the Frasers and the Monroes and the Wests and the great players of the day, uh, uh, the offensive threats. He would guard the better, the best offensive player, whether it was a point guard or a, or a, a shooting guard. Uh, and he was a key to that. Offensively, um, he, he was a poor shooter that Tom Heinsohn worked tirelessly with. I give him full credit for working uh, after practice. I saw it day after day, getting him to – to, uh, um, his problem was Cheney had a, a – no fixed release point, and he also drifted right or left with usually right with his jumper rather than going straight up. And Tommy worked till he got to be a more reliable shooter. Plus, Cheney was very good on the break. He actually averaged 13 points a game in, in the 72-73 because he got a lot of garbage points and and, and fast break points. And and um, and every once in a while, would stick in a 18 and even occasionally a 20 point game. They actually had a game in against the um, uh, the then um, I think they were I'm not sure if they were the Baltimore or the Bullets or the Capital Bullets at the time because they were in between, but um, in which each of the five starters scored 20 points. And that's a very rare occasion. That has happened very seldom in an NBA game. I've seen it twice, and it's only happened. That's all I've ever seen in all the couple thousand games I've seen. And Cheney was one of those five 20-point scorers. But um, he was um, – a selfless player. And then one of the other things he did that Tommy Hudson, you know, I learned so much from these people. Uh, he was willing to run the run, 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 run on the break to create the, uh, the extra man advantage, knowing he wouldn't get the ball. You need this to have a proper fast break. How do you get four on three? Well, you get the fourth guy. A lot of guys don't understand. They think if they don't, if, if they're not going to get the ball, they don't want to run. Cheney was, was willing to run even though he, he wouldn't get the ball. One of my favorite parts of our Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s series is our awesome logo. It does a perfect job encapsulating exactly the tone and feel we wanted with the series. Well, today, I have some exciting news for you. The illustrator of that fantastic logo, Daniel J. Rowell, has made the logo, the cream and Dr. J head, as well as a bunch of other of his art, available to purchase at DanielJRowell.com. Simply go to DanielJRowell.com, that's D-A-N-I-E-L-J-R-O-W-E-L-L.com. Click on merch and you can buy sweaters, coffee mugs, shirts, and more featuring Daniel's art. Now, just in case you're still on the fence, do know that Daniel can hold a piece of toast in his mouth for a solid eh, 45 seconds or so without dropping it. Plus, if you need a little bit more convincing, his aunt has described these shirts as fabulous. Again, to buy your tea, mug, or anything else that your little heart desires, go to Daniel J. Rowell, that's D-A-N-I-E-L-J-R-O-W-E-L-L.com, and click on Merch. Um, so the 73 season, uh, Celtics win 68 games, which was the second best, tied for the second best mark at the, uh, of the time. Uh, they beat the Hawks in six games and then fell to the Knicks in seven games in the Eastern Conference Finals. This is kind of the, the, the final year for the Knicks as they, they win their second championship this season and toward, toward the end of them as a powerhouse under, uh, Walt Frazier, Willis Reed, uh, David Busher and company, um, the first two games are uh, blowouts that the Celtics and Knicks uh, split one to one. 
Uh, and then uh, Havlicek is um, injured during this series. Uh, the Knicks take game four in double overtime. But despite Havlicek's injury, uh, he's he's in and out and mostly ineffective, unfortunately, when he able comes in. Uh, the, the Celtics do end up uh, forcing a, a game seven uh, that they uh, that they lose in Boston. Um, what do you kind of remember about that series? <laughs> what do I kind of remember? What every <laughs> Celtic fan of the day remembers game four. All right, you're right. They split games one and two, and in game three, um, Havlicek is caught in a crunch uh, between Dave DeBusher and Bill Bradley, and he wrenches his right shoulder. And he cannot play in game four, which happens to be on Easter Sunday and which happens to be the day when JoJo White's first child, Brian White, was born in the wee small hours uh, of, of that day. Anyway, um, they go to New York. They come back in you know, on a Sunday afternoon in New York for game four, and they play a magnificent game. And they are up by 16 points entering the fourth quarter, despite no Havlicek. And in the fourth quarter, depending on which version you would like, I will give you the Nick version. The Nick version is that it was one of the great heroic comebacks in Nick history. They came from 16 down. Uh, they tied it up. They, and they heroically won in double overtime with, uh, with, among other things, a great performance by the unsung John Gianelli, and, uh, uh, who outplayed Cowens in the overtimes and blah, 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 and, and all of which is true. However, let me give you the Celtic version. The Celtic version is that referees Jake O'Donnell and Jack Madden, two great referees, I am here to tell you, and good guys, got caught up as human beings in what I called then and now subconscious crowd orchestration, aiding and abetting the Knicks at every turn, giving the Knicks uh, unfair advantage. It was five on seven in that fourth quarter. It was an astonishing uh, travesty of justice against the Celtics, most exemplified in one particular play in which Frazier steals the ball, and as he is driving down, there's, I would never forget this, and there was a photo to substantiate it. Don Nelson is back, and he knows that he does not want to create the impression of any contact to create a three-point play, and he pulls his arms down to allow an unimpeded progress to the hoop for Walt Frazier. Jack Madden has his arm raised, ready to signal the three-point play, even before Frazier has shot the ball. Well, he scores, and he gets the three-point play. This is what was going on in the eyes of the Celtic party. So they wind up losing all the momentum. They wind up getting into the overtimes, and they wind up losing that game. Uh, and, and it wasn't just the Boston reaction. The neutrals, and you can check this out, the neutrals were appalled at what they have just seen. They thought it was a disgrace. Jack Kaiser of the Philadelphia Daily News referred to it, and this is his phraseology, not mine, the rape of Madison Square, unquote. Check it out. You can find it. And that was the prevailing universal opinion outside of New York. The Celtics were robbed. Okay. Now, we come back to Boston, 3-1 uh, to one New York, game five. Havlicek plays. Basically, with one arm is left. He scores 18 points. They win the game. Silas has a great game, has two concluding free throws to help him win. So they keep, they, they keep it alive. Uh, they, they come back to New York, and lo and behold, they steal game six in New York. Havlicek plays, but far less effectively. He does have nine points, but less effectively than he did in game, in game six. But they've tied it up. Oh, my God. We come back to Boston. At this point in history, the Celtics had never lost a seventh game at home. And they were uh, sentimental favorites, and they were, and they had them, felt they had the momentum, and and then you know, and uh, this is just a foregone conclusion, and and Havlicek's going to write off, and uh, well, no, the Knicks, the Knicks were too good for that. They said, uh, uh-uh, uh, not going to happen. And when Havlicek entered the game, is coming off the bench, they ganged up on him. They said, you know, we're going to make, we're not going to allow him, we're not going to, no more respect. 
and and he turned it over, and they they just made him. He was useless, useless. They just rendered him useless. And you know what the star of the game was? The unsung star of the game, other was Gene Meminger. Dean Meminger had a great game for the Knicks. Final score, New York 90, Boston 74, and, and that was that. So we have to go back. The, the Celtics uh, will always believe that had Havlicek – oh, and the one postscript is this. The Knicks won the championship, beating the Lakers in five. During the regular season, the Celtics swept the Lakers all four games. And in those four games, Cowens averaged 31 points and 19 rebounds in the, uh, per game against the fading Wilt Chamberlain. There was no doubt they would have beaten the Lakers as well. But the Knicks did, and they won the championship. Yeah. And um, obviously, you know, the, the, the if history had been different to the Celtics winning that championship, not only, you know, adds to the legend of the 70s team, it also takes away, um, you, you know, some of the magic of that, you know, the – how those Knicks teams are remembered. Uh, you know, obviously they're remembered as, as, as great teams without that second championship. It takes a little bit of the shine off it. Of course, you still have the you know, the 70 series and Willis Reed and, and, and all that. But, um, but it would have been one, it would have been one championship. One right. I said, it would have been a, now, in my opinion, that's the most important championship in the history of the league. That, that season, the Knicks being good changed everything for the NBA. Um, the all, they got more attention and, 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 and notoriety from the one championship in 1970 than the Celtics got from the 11 from 1956 to 69 because it was New York. It was Madison Avenue. It was a different world. And, and, and the, the, they were on the cover of Times and Newsweeks, and they, 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 trans- they put the NBA on the map in a way the Celtics never did because it was New York. And, and, and by the way, I loved watching that Knicks team. It was a great team, great passing team, uh, great personality. I mean, it was, they were great to cover, too, let me tell you. And uh, it was just wonderful. And, uh, um, you know, they, they were good for the league. They, they were an important, important um, – that was an important juncture in NBA history. So the uh, 74 team, um, they have roughly the same roster, although Paul Westfall is uh, playing more uh, during this season, kind of emerging as, as sort of a, you know, a, a sixth man playing a shooting guard. Um, he would l- later be, be an important trade for the team with Charlie Scott leading the 76 championship, but he's part of this team. Um, they win 56 games, second in the league to the Bucks. Um they beat the Braves in uh, six games with uh, uh, Bob McAdoo and Jack Ramsey as their coach. Then they uh, they finally beat the Knicks in five in the Eastern Conference mm. Finals, who they had lost to the previous two seasons, and beat the uh, Bucks in seven games in the finals. And this is really uh, you, you know one one big thing is that this is basically the end for two power teams in the early '70s NBA: the Knicks and the Bucks, who had you know both been dominant teams along with the Lakers during that time. The um, you know the Celtics were able to knock two of those uh, teams off um and uh that's a you know kind of an unheralded accomplishment yes uh and in all fairness to the knicks by 74 um their physical situation caught up with them they were not at 100 percent in that series the celtics won with relative ease uh and uh, the busher was injured with uh pulled stomach muscle i believe it was and 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 reed who was always uh, uh physically you know having problems was pretty much done and uh, it wasn't that wasn't the nick team uh that was their last hurrah and they gave it a noble effort but the celtics had clearly surpassed them and the Knicks just weren't physically ready to play the younger better celtic team in 74 uh as far as the Buffalo series, that was a very contested series, which ended in a in a highly controversial ending in Game Six, in which um, uh, Bob McAdoo um, blocked a shot. Uh, 
blocked the shot that uh, and and off of uh, Havlicek, and it, and it rolled away, and he and and uh, he went over and made a tremendous defensive play to try to stop JoJo White, and and they called a foul that was a very dubious call at the buzzer. And White made the two free throws essentially after the game was over to win the game. And after the game, the owner, Paul Snyder, was banging on the door of Mendy Root, of the referees, yelling, Mendy, the game was over. What he meant was the clock should have expired before the before the um, uh, free throws were awarded. And, of course, today we'd have replay and we'd, we'd have it settled once and for all. But Buffalo was on the move then. That was a, they were a tough opponent with uh, Ernie D and Randy Smith and Jack Marin and uh, so forth and, of course, uh, McAdoo. And then in the finals, uh, the finals, it was a, one of the most entertaining finals ever uh, to cover. Uh, anybody who covered it will remember it with great fondness in Milwaukee. Uh, but the Bucks had a, uh, they, they were underhand, uh, undermanned. Uh, they lost Lucius Allen before the final started. He got slipped on a warm up jacket, believe it or not, and carelessly placed in a previous series. And then they lost um, um, uh, uh, Fritz Williams. Oh, no, that's John McLaughlin, I believe, early in, in the first game. And so they wound up with a strange backcourt, which included putting forward Mickey Davis at backcourt. And what I'm getting at here is the fact that Kareem Abdul-Jabbar was absolutely so immense. He, without him, there's no series. The Celtics easily could have swept in four. They lost a, uh, an overtime, and they lost another close game. And they, uh, and they could have easily won in four, but not, the only reason they didn't was Kareem was s- sensational. And, of course, you're well aware of the famous sixth game, the Celtics in overtime, I um, thought they had it won in, in double overtime, and uh, uh, Havlicek had a great second overtime, but Kareem made this classic Kareem is 18-foot hook on the baseline to win the game and uh, create a seventh game. And in the seventh game, um, Cowens, who was 4-for-18 four in the um, sixth game, was determined to play better, came out and had a great first half, uh, was shot 8-for-13, and the Celtics went on winning uh, by 15, although it, it went, a 17-point lead got down to three in the fourth quarter. And as you mentioned, Westfall. Westfall, I can still see it to this day, drove baseline with a great reverse uh, left-hand, uh, double-pumping reverse left-hand drive that launched the, the comeback, and Havlicek sealed it with a, a three-point play, old-fashioned, and, uh, and they won. But the, I, I, you cannot say enough about how great Kareem was against a team that had a lot more weaponry. And Oscar, it was Oscar Robertson's farewell, and he was 35, and, and, and he could not uh, uh, play back to back to back uh, against a young stud like Cheney uh, so that wasn't the Oscar that you knew yeah and and Cheney was you know they, they made the uh, you know decision to, to, to press the guards you know uh, really uh, Oscar right. was the only you know a guard that they had and obviously he was toward the end he struggled in that game and then when Cheney got into foul trouble Paul Westfall came in and um, was able to you know p- crank up the defensive pressure and also uh, scored 12 points off the uh, bench um, Robertson yep. scored uh, he shot Two, two of 13 during the uh, game. So, um, and yeah, the, the way that Cowens was able to play against Kareem was able to, you know, play strong defense despite the size advantage and had 28 and 14 of his own. So, oh, but um, the other thing we have to point out that there's great, there's a great strategic uh, uh, summit conference took place after game six in Boston, in Red Auerbach's office at, at, at midnight. And uh, it involved uh, the likes of, of uh, Red and Heinsohn and Tom Heinsohn and Bob Cousy. Uh, as a consultant, if you will. And they had traditionally, since the day that Cowens had entered the league, which was one year after Kareem or or Lou Alcindor in those days, um, they had single-teamed him, left it for Cowens or for Hank Finkel. They did not – and they said, all right, this is the most important game. Um, We're not going to let him beat us. 
We cannot. He was. I'm telling you how magnificent he was in the series. We cannot let him beat us. If, if Cornell Warner and Curtis Perry beat us, so be it. That well, they double, they double and triple teamed him, and there was a 17-minute stretch of the game in which he did not score, and it was during that period of time, overlapping the second and third periods, when the Celtics built up their lead, the big lead that they lived off, and uh, that's the only time. That was the first time that they had uh, decided to double and triple team him. Everybody else did, of course, but they never did. But that's uh, that was a key strategy uh, factor. In, in that the winning of that series uh so 75 the um the celtics and bullets tie for the best record in the league with, with 60 wins uh they beat an up-and-coming rockets team in five games with Ritan vanovich and um calvin murphy mike newland before moses malone of course and then they fell to the bullets uh four to two in the eastern conference finals the the bullets of course with um elvin hayes uh wes unseld phil chenier and uh, kevin porter i believe um do you, what do you remember about the um, about the Bullets uh, Celtics series? What I remember, first of all, we have to back up to the beginning of the season. In an exhibition game in Asheville, North Carolina, uh, against the Carolina Cougars, uh, Fatty Taylor stole the ball, and uh, it's an exhibition game. Who cares? Dave Cowens is Dave Cowens. He chases him down. He blocks the shot. He crashes to the floor. He hits his bikes his foot under the superstructure of the basket, and now and misses the first 17 games of the season. Let's start with that. Uh, they're 9-8 and eight after 17 games. Now, Silas, by the way, is leading the league in rebounds. You can check that out, too, But the, being Paul Silas. But they're 9-8 and eight after 17 games. So do the math of what they did when Collins came back to win the 60 and tie them at 60-22. and 22. So, yes, they did, in fact, tie the Bullets at 60-22. and 22. What I remember is this. The Celtics had a big lead at uh, first game at home and blew it. And, or the Bullets had a comeback. No, there was no, no yeah buts here. There's no Jake O'Donnell, Jack Madden whining on the pair. They got beat. The Bullets came back and beat them and stole game one and, and changed the series right there. They never recovered from losing game one at home. It's just that simple. And the Bullets deserved to win that series. And what, what I do remember most, Elvin Hayes was a good physical matchup for Cowens. Um, a little, same size. And he had that great turnaround jumper, and he was a great athlete. And I'm, I'm, no, I'm no big fan of his, believe me, but I give him full credit. Um, um, he was a good matchup. And uh, the Hayes and Unsel played great, and they deserved to win that series. Yeah, it looks like uh, Cowens and Havlicek struggled for shooting, especially early on in the series. In the first two games, they only made 27 of 80 shots. Yeah. And the Bullets, uh, one of their defensive counters was they would um, they would try to negate the uh, the fast break by um, having you know one of their players, Shanier or Porter or Mike Reardon, you know, um, stay back so, to kind of just you know nullify the fast break a little bit, and they they kind of gave up the offensive rebounds to um, do that. Obviously, they had Hayes and Unzelt who were great offensive rebounders still but they sort of uh sacrificed that to uh counter the fast break which of course is a common strategy now but was a little bit less common uh, during that uh you are 100 percent correct and that was the strategy that another later uh bullets coach used with great success against the celtics and that was gene chu but this was casey jones and bernie bickerstaff duo yes um one other x factor that you cannot ignore the the unfathomable play of nick weatherspoon one of the most intriguingly frustrating players to play against in, in his brief little run of greatness that I've ever seen. Nick Weatherspoon tortured them. And 6-7 forward, people forget him now. People say, who? Well, Nick Weatherspoon, look him up. He tortured them. And the thing that drove you crazy about him is the best way to guard Nick Weatherspoon was not to. Let him be open. Put a guy on him and his jock 
and he could score in your face, at least against the Boston Celtics. It was astonishing. I grew personally to hate Nick Weatherspoon, not that I ever met him or knew him. I mean, as a player. He drove me nuts I, because it just was – he offended my aesthetic sense. <laughs> you know, it, it, it was a really a funny thing. It, it, he, was a, he was a real, real interesting aspect of that rivalry. Uh, so, uh, 1976 season, um, they are they win 54 games, second in the league to the Warriors, who won 59, I believe. And uh, the the big uh, change in the team, well, they lost Don Chain to the ABA, and um, they also traded uh, Paul Westfall for uh, Charlie Scott. Um, how did that trade uh, change the dynamic of the team? <laughs> well, first of all, the Cheney thing, he played as a lame duck the entire 74-75 season. He had signed a future contract with the St. Louis Spirits, and so he was a lame duck. Um, but yeah, you're right. They trade Westfall, which which was a very um, uh, uh, for Scott, and there was a couple other considerations, but that's what it was. Okay. Uh, changed the dynamics of the team enormously, and um, I've always felt that the, the trade was made, Red being very sagacious, knowing that um, – Jojo White was not going to share the spotlight with a guy he viewed as his substitute, i.e. Westfall. That that there were going to have to be nights in which uh, White would Westfall would get 30 and White would get 10, and that was not going to sit well with Jojo. Uh, but if he trades for a comparable star, i.e. Scott, Jojo will better acclimate himself to the idea that, of sharing the spotlight. No one can prove this, but I believe it, and I've had it confirmed by uh, other insiders. Okay. So he makes the trade. And Charlie Scott's a great talent. And, of course, no one knew Westfall was going to blossom into the player he did to the level he did. I, I, even me, who loved him, that he was, turned out to be better than I even, ever dreamed. But Charlie Scott comes. It's a little bit and – and it, and it basically uh, it works. Charlie, it takes a while, but uh, Charlie is a talent. And, uh, oh, he's a character beyond belief. There's nobody – I always say about Charlie Scott, uh, if you ask him what time of day it is, it will give you the political history of Switzerland. You know, I mean, that's just the way Charlie is. But anyway, it, it was a fascinating season in that regard. And you're right, they didn't, they, they won, quote, only 54 games. And when this playoffs, this was the year, this is Golden State as defending champions, and they were the league, and they were the, by far the favorites to win the championship. There, there was no issue. Well, the Celtics do go through this very strange postseason when they win three six-game series. Each one of them followed the same pattern. They won all three six games on the road, naturally. Scott, in each of the in first two, in all three six games, including the finals, he had a great six game and, um, and, and turned out to be a, you know, a tremendous asset. Um, and, but the, the, the thing is this. They want to play Phoenix instead of Golden State. Why? Because Phoenix upset Golden State in the Western Conference Finals. Why? Because who knows why? Rick Barry stood around with his arms folded, as Al Addo said, in Game 7, pouting for some reason or other, and they lost Game 7. Uh, and they did not get to the finals. And there they were with the 42-40 and 40 Phoenix Suns. Yeah, uh, obviously one of the – and the 70s are – there are quite a few of upsets of teams that um, you, you wouldn't think would have deep runs in the postseason. But obviously the um, the um, the Celtics were victims of that at 73, losing to um, – a uh, losing to that that Knicks team, even that's more of an understandable situation. But a, a, a number is sort of an interesting era of uh, lots of uh, playoff upsets, mm-hmm. and, and and the Suns obviously making it to the finals um, was a uh, you know was illustration of that. Um, yeah, Boston did win the first two games fairly easily in the series. Uh, the Suns were able to battle back and uh, won close games in uh, three and four. Jojo White missed a jumper at the end of game four that um, that I believe would have tied the game. Um, so Phoenix won those two at home. 
And then we get to game five, and uh, considered by many the greatest game in NBA history. It's a triple overtime game. We recently celebrated the 40th anniversary of this game. Um, talk about your memories of this mm. game. Well, first of all, if we just back up just a slightly bit. Um, sure. Yes, the Celtics won the first two games in handily. And, and as often happened in those days, and, 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 and it's always possible to happen in any era, the losing coach decides that he's got to work the refs. And he thought, he thought that Cowens and Silas were pushing them around, and he whined and cried, John McLeod did. And uh, the, the refereeing tenor, once they got home, the refereeing tenor did change. They got a lot more breaks than they were getting in Boston, and, uh, uh, and they did play well, and, and uh, they had a precocious rookie, and they have two precocious rookies, Alvin Adams and Ricky Sobers. And uh, they had Dick Van Osdale, and they had Westfall, and, and uh, they, they had some uh, – Hawaii, they only won 42 was the mystery, not, not that they, you know, they should have done better. But anyway – so they win those two games. You're right. And, um, and they come home in game five. And game five in a 2-2-1-1-1 is, is a mini seven. In the first 20, let's see, 14, 16 minutes, in the first 16 minutes or so roughly of that game five, the Celtics played their best basketball of the entire postseason. They were magnificent. They got up by 22. And it looked like the la-di-da, they're going to cruise. Phoenix was resilient. They had already shown it some, some stuff. And now they were showing it. They came all the way back. And it got, got it back down. Then, with about four, three minutes to go, the Celtics got it back to nine. Looked like they were uh, going to put it away. And Westfall led a sort of counter surge, including one shot everybody remembers, a spinning 360 banker. And long story short, we wind up in this triple overtime that included such things as Paul Silas calling a timeout that Richie Powers did not acknowledge that would have resulted in a technical foul that would have given this, uh, them to win a chance to win at the end of either regulation or the first overtime. Richie Powers shook his head and said no, and later said nobody's – I didn't want to lose the game to lose in like that. Uh, we had uh, the referee uh, uh, the game ending and uh, the people come out and got a fan attacking uh, – not the game, period – attacking Richie Powers uh, on the floor. And we had at the end of the uh, – uh, uh, second overtime, John Havlicek making this fantastic shot coming out of the time uh, sideline side uh, to put them up, uh, running off the court. Uh, the, the clock was allowed to expire, but why no? The referee said, no, 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 no. There was still time left. They had to bring everybody back. And uh, during that timeout, Westfall uh, – uh, is seen, and I know, talking to John McLeod and saying, hey, you know, uh, we don't have any timeouts, but if we take a timeout, uh, we can get the ball at midcourt. Uh, they'll take a technical foul, but we'll get the ball back. So uh, they, uh, in fact, um, uh, he does that. They do it. Joe Joe White makes the free throw. If he doesn't, oh, boy. And uh, when the ball comes in, Garhurd throws in the shot at the buzzer to retie the game. And don't let anybody ever tell you it would have been a three-point shot. It would not have been a three-point shot. It was no. That, so let's stop, let's eliminate that myth because I'm sure somebody has told you it's going to be it would have been a three today. No, it was foul line extended. It was about 18 feet. Now it was about 118 feet in the air, along with Purvis Short had one of the highest arcs on a jumper I've ever seen. But um, it was not a three-point shot. Trust me. Anyway, and we get to the third overtime of this wonderful game and. Uh, now they're running out of bodies, fouling out both ways, and here comes Celtics have to turn to Glenn McDonald, who was a second-year player who was not playing all that much. And in one minute and change of burst, he scores six points, blows a layup, and turns the ball over. <laughs> all in a minute and like 10, 15, whatever. But those six points were vital. One of them was a terrific shot in the baseline. And uh, they get up by six. Well, here come – no, no, they're over. Here come the Suns again. 
And uh, they got by six, by the way, Jim Ard making two free throws while being taunted by, I believe, Sobers. And um, Jimmy Ard was a backup center. And uh, the game ends uh, only because uh, Westfall came within a hairline of, of stealing a ball at midcourt that would have given the shot to tie. So it's over 128-126. White had 15 points in the overtimes. He, he, uh, he was the uh, deserved MVP of the series. It, it really was a great game. Now, that was on Friday night, and we are playing on Sunday afternoon in Phoenix. And we get back to Phoenix for game six. And even the crowd, which had watched the game from Phoenix, was exhausted. <laughs> I mean, they weren't the same. The crowd was muted. And uh, it wasn't a great game. It was, it was a very mundane game. Uh, the key game, the key of it was Scott had a big game. And now Scott had fouled out in 25 minutes on Friday night. And Red Auerbach told him after the game, get your rest. You are going to be very important on Sunday. And sure enough, he was because so many other guys were white at 53 minutes. You know, Havlicek was 36 years old, etc. And um, so um, he was important. And Cowens had a big play, stole the ball from Alvin Adams at midcourt. I can still see it going down, a spinning three-pointer. And they win the game 87-80. It wasn't a great game. And, uh, uh, but uh, even it was anticlimactic. The, the whole series was wrapped up in that wonderful game on that Friday night. Absolutely. Well, um, Bob, thank you so much for uh, being on our show. We uh, really appreciate it. And um, thanks, everyone, for uh, checking us out. We, of course, we'll be uh, continuing um, this series throughout the offseason. So uh, let us know uh, what you think. And until next time, uh, thanks for listening. Next time on Basketball Mysteries of the 1970s. So that's another remarkable sort of aspect about those, that 72 team especially, is that in Wilt and West who were still around, you had these guys who weren't at a prime age for, for being dominant, but they still were that season. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.